gentlemen welcome to another episode of the sample hour um really excited to have this guest on today i started listening to his podcast probably after i shortly after i really shifted gears with this podcast really focusing on um you know urban farming and and agriculture and everything else like that uh this gentleman also has a conference that he's that this is going to be doing for his third year which is pretty pretty awesome i'm going to go this year it's called permaculture voices or pv3 he has a show called permaculture voices you can go to his show permaculturevoices.com uh if if you guys don't already listen to I highly my favorite one of my favorite podcasts on right now besides just he has about three going on there um, but him and Curtis Stone's podcast Urban Farmer I'm a huge fan on Mr. Diego Footer D I E G O <laughs> Thanks for having me man No problem man uh I'm super stoked to have you on uh my friend uh, I was just saying to you before the show uh, my friend Joel said, make sure when you introduce him, you say D-I-E-G-O, just like he does on every episode. But uh, yeah, Diego, just wanted to have you on. I think a lot of times when I listen to your show, um, you know, I could definitely tell you're from like a sales business background. And, you know, and I, I kind of wanted to go into deep and, and, and let my audience know who Diego Putter is. Because um, I didn't really know myself. I know you've you've been in like kind of like the financial business um, but I guess from my understanding, you're kind of scaling back and really just wanted to hear like kind of your story and how you became like, you know, what made you start your podcast? I know for me, it was, it was like a therapeutic thing at first. And then it, it really just kind of turned into um, a vehicle for me to, to, to kind of guide me along whatever path and journey I'm on. So what, so what, what was kind of like the inspired? So first off, I guess, you know, what's your background? Just so, just so my listeners know. Sure thing. Yeah. It's ironic that we're doing this today because I actually just recorded an episode that's kind of similar to this today that'll probably be out by the time this airs. Kind of going into my whole story, especially focusing on the last 10 years. Because I started out in college in 1998, went to school for computer engineering, and I absolutely hated programming. I hated sitting in a computer all day, which is kind of ironic because now with the podcast and the web work I do, a lot of my days are spent sitting at the computer, but that's the whole doing something you like versus just doing something. Yeah. So I started out in that, ended up wanting to switch to finance. In about 1998, 1999, my parents shut that down, ended up sticking with engineering, graduated with that in 2003. That took me out to California for a job that I worked, and my whole plan was to still really get into finance from there. I wanted to be involved with business. I liked engineering, but I wasn't an engineer in the true sense of the word. I didn't love stuff like thermodynamics and entropy. That wasn't my thing. <laughs> so, so I decided, okay, I want to be involved in the finance side of things. I want to be involved in the business side of things. And I can always utilize my engineering background and just work for a company and kind of go the MBA route. So I ended up going 
back to school uh, for one year at nights, got my master's in finance. <clears throat> that took me through a couple financial services firms. I ended up doing some contract work for an aerospace company. And I ended up at a company that really blended my technical expertise from finance, or sorry, from engineering with finance. And that's where I've been for the last 10 years. And it's a field that I liked when I started and I don't love it now. And I'm actually in the process of leaving that job you know, depending on when this ends, I may or may not be, depending on when this airs, I may or may not be working there when it does air because I'm going to be done probably about the beginning of January. That's super exciting, man. Um, so, I mean, if you're in finance too, were you mainly, were you mainly in like the stock market? Was it mainly like a, like kind of insurance thing? And you don't have to get into too many details if you don't want to. I know, um, I looked into it a while back at first, like I had some friends that worked at Northwestern Mutual and then I had some other friends that actually did like uh mutual, uh, they did like IRAs and stuff, but it was like A shares versus B shares and we don't have to get into too much of it. But I, I know that there's a lot of different things. Like there's a fu- person that says they're a financial advisor, but they're really just kind of like a relationship salesperson. And then there's actual people that you give them their money and they invest it for you in the stock market. So um, what, what kind of route did you start out in? Was it, was it really like, what, what kind of really interested you in finance initially? Sure. I mean, I guess technically I'm a broker according to the SEC because they have a lot of nuanced definitions in terms of who can call themselves financial advisors and who cannot. What really interested me in finance was the stock market itself. Because when I went to college, what was happening back in 1998, the internet boom, telecom boom was just going nuts. So that absolutely captivated me. And I read as much as I could. I studied as much as I could on it, invested what little I could. I really got into it. And that's what I always loved. I loved the market mechanics. I wasn't necessarily into the client side of things. That's not why I wanted to get into it. And I really didn't want to get into it to make a lot of money. I was just really liked the idea of buying and selling stocks. It was more the trading side of things was my interest. So I studied a lot in that, but then it's tough to find jobs that kind of line up in finance with what you ultimately want to do because a lot of jobs in the financial services sector they're just glorified salesmen. I mean, that's yeah. it. doesn't matter whether you know how to analyze anything or not. You are just pushing product. So that's not the type of company that I worked at. The company that I worked at, I'd say, was is, is very ethical, um, high standards compared to some of the other companies out there. And But at the same time, you know, I never really got to do what I ultimately wanted to do within finance. So while I worked for a financial services company, I didn't really get to express the my interest in that sector as much as I wanted. And I think at the beginning, I thought, okay, that's fine. Let me learn the robes. And then somewhere probably around year five or six, it just fell into complacency. And then it's gotten to the point now where it's like, what am I doing here? Uh, I don't like what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, for me, man, I, am a, I've been in sales for, I'm a, I'm like five years younger than you. Um, I've probably about that. I've been in sales for almost 10 years and now it's just like, man, I, I've, I've been in telecommunications 
and it's just super cutthroat. And I, I, I'm really trying to, 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 to position myself to get to where you are now, where you're, you're about ready to walk away in January. So how did you start to make those steps? So you, you realize that you're not happy here. Um, you're, you realize you're not happy where you currently are. Then how did you start to, to transition to where now you could probably walk away in January? Yeah, I'm kind of at an interesting position because the sector of the stock market that I'm involved in has been in a bear market for a few years. It's been very depressed in terms of the type of work that we do. So our company, despite what the S&B is doing, is not doing so well. So that's kind of poured on to the dissatisfaction I have with the job. You know, it's depressing every day to go in and the stuff that you typically follow is just going down. It's hard to do that because I don't care what any investor says, a lot of their emotional state is tied to what the numbers on the screen are saying. So the company slowed down and along with it, so has my income. And I kind of have gotten to the point where it's like, okay, I'm not making much money there. And what do I want to do? Do I want to stick it out and wait it out and and see if our sector changes, if the company kind of does some new strategy? Do I want to dive in wholeheartedly and become part of the change in this new company and really apply myself or not? I'm 35, I have two kids, and I'm kind of looking at like, what do I want to do for the next five years? Do I want to just trench in and probably have to spend 12 hours a day, you know, really to help turn things around at that company. And I started looking at it and it's like, I don't want to do that. You know, I've been here 10 years now. I feel like I'm at this inflection point in my life where I got to decide, what do I want to do for the next five or 10 years? Yeah. And if I commit, I got to stick with it. So I'm not leaving in the sense or with the benefit of saying, you know, I have this FU money, I can just walk away and say, you know, I can afford to live on my own. I'm walking away saying, okay, I'm giving up a little bit of income for the opportunity to go out and try and take control of my own finances and do some stuff on my own to make up from the gap. So I'm not, I look at it like I'm not risking a lot because I'm not making a lot there. But at the same time, when I leave, income shuts down, I got to figure out a way to make it work. And I've kind of actually developed a few things to help make that strategy a little more easy or riskless, if you could. You know, I've really looked at all the income streams that I have around permaculture voices and tried to say, okay, how can I start to build up those? Because it doesn't have to be just one income stream. If I can get a few different things to add up to enough to cover my monthlies, then that's fine. And what I've also done is I went to my employer and I said, look, I'm not really happy with what I'm doing. There's really no point in me being here for 40 hours a week. What if when you guys had projects that came up, you know, I came in and worked part-time, did some contract work for you, and this would be in a totally different area of the company where I'm working at now. And I've been a good employee, thankfully, and they said, yeah, okay, We'd love to have your help. We know you're efficient. You know what's going on. You've been here. So it takes away this all or nothing approach, the stress of just, oh, what am I going to do? I'm not making any money. And what I've effectively done is taken the handcuff 
that I had to that desk five days a week, eight plus hours a day, and I've cut that off. And now I can work for the company, kind of still keep my foot in the door, make some income, which supplements my side businesses while I try to build them. And I gain control of my time, which is something that's been really hard not having control of. Yeah, that's something I struggle with the most. I think, you know, listening to you and Curtis talk about uh, the urban farmer and talk about taking Curtis's course and do it part time. And I hear you talk about it and now I'm doing it and we have like the, the microgreen portion going and it's so hard because the time where it's best for us to talk to chefs is the time where I got to be at work. My partner's delivering flowers, doing his, his, his job. And it's like, you know, I've been managing to do it, but I, I need to really figure out a time, a way to buckle down and, uh, and manage this time more efficiently. So, uh, not to really take away with in, in about your story. I'm just saying in general, I, it's, it's, that is the, that is the hardest thing. When you work full time, you're trying to build part-time businesses to get the multiple streams of income, which I think is great. Um, you know, personally, that's, that's something I've been really, I really try to focus on with this show is, you know, really monetizing your lifestyle, like have, try to make it so everything you do kind of pays for itself. And it's not an easy task, but I think it's something to, to keep in mind. Like, find a hobby, then figure out how to, a way to pay yourself for your own time. And, um, and I think, and, and I'm not sure, but it sounds like that's, that's something that you're, you're, you're focusing on as well. Yeah, definitely. And kind of, you know, going back to what you said there, just to, to play off of that a little bit, you know, I think your problem is the problem I had. And it's the problem that a lot of people out there have is they work a full-time job and they want to transition to something else. But the problem is you work a full-time job and that sucks up a lot of hours. So it's really hard to start something on the side effectively when you're trapped at another job, 40 plus hours a week, plus commute time and all that. So I'd advise people in that position, you know, could you still maintain that job, but switch it up a little bit? Could you work remotely? Could you possibly go contract? Could you go part-time? Could you work out a deal? Like if you're sales, okay, what, what times a day do you typically do most of your sales? Could you just work those hours and, you know, 80, 20 it, you know, a lot of these little Tim Ferriss four hour work week type hacks, but I don't think it has to be an all or nothing approach. Um, obviously if you're in a factory turning widgets all the time, you're not working from home, but there's so many jobs nowadays that people can do remotely. And I think employers are just looking for ways to cut overhead. You know, if you don't have to pay the person benefits and they're a contractor, great. And there's actually a lot of tax and health insurance benefits to getting out of that system if, if you're at a certain income level. Um, so, so that's what I've tried to done. And then, yeah, at the same time, it's been like, okay, I also need to start making money more money, increase the amount of money I'm making because I'm not going to have this salary check coming in all the time. And I've just, again, tried to approach this as it doesn't have to be one thing pays for it all. Because the way I've kind of arrived at my business or the way it's evolved pretty much unintentionally is there's a lot of little things that kind of add up to some money. And when you lump all those together, it turns out to be an okay amount of money. So it's like, starting to look at a lot of what we talk about in the urban farm with Curtis. Okay. Which areas of my passive and 
not-so-passive income make the most money? And which ones do I have to dedicate the most time with and which ones can I scale more with the time that I do have and start focusing on there? So then if I have five or six things that all bring in, I don't know, say $500 a month each, well, that starts adding up to be something significant. Yeah, absolutely. So what... um what things have you have you done? Like, what if? And you don't have to get into too many details if you don't want to. But what what businesses are you have? So you have Permaculture Voices. Um, well, actually, like, let's kind of shift gears. When did you? So when did you start the podcast? And when did you really start to get into uh, um, uh, sustainable slash restoration agriculture? Like, when did when did you go from being in the finance world to to, to finding that? and really focus and hunker down on it? I mean, after I started the conference, I started the podcast maybe six to eight months later because I knew, excuse me, the podcast would be a good way to promote. And so, so the conference actually came first. Okay, my apologies. The, I didn't Yeah, the, the conference came first. So I say I started planning that in, you know, November, about now, 2013. I'm sorry, 2013. 12 and then the podcast probably launched somewhere in like June 2013. Okay. Yeah, my apologies. I'm still new to the like you got a lot of episodes so I feel bad cuz I haven't gone all the way back to see. I just know I listened to it. I'm like, man, he sounds like he's been doing this for 5 years. So it's been it's actually been a pretty recent thing then. So within the past couple of years. So when did you start to really get into uh agriculture then, like sustainable agriculture? You know, this the story there is one of our clients at my finance job sent me a book called Anti-Cancer. And it really was one of those books. I read it and it scared the crap out of me. And it was, it talked about a doctor who I I can't remember if it was him or his his wife or his sister got cancer. And and he just wasn't happy with the common treatment options of how they kind of rush you into chemo and those types of things. So he ended up looking at, okay, what is cancer? Why do we get cancer? Long story short, he tied it to diet. So I looked at what I was eating, kind of changed up my diet. And I think once you start eating healthy, that kind of opens the rabbit hole to growing your own food. Through growing your own food, you know, you start Googling everything, watching videos. Somewhere along the time, that time permaculture showed up. Yeah, that's uh, that's the same exact story for me, Diego. Like I, uh, I wanted to, the girlfriend... I actually did this like whole this uh uh this uh paleo style diet and it was all about it's called whole thirty and it was all about, you know, finding farm raised stuff and I'd and I'd watched Food Inc. like back in two thousand uh I think like two thousand eight, like right around the time it came out. And I'd like started to do things, but it was I didn't really have like a blueprint for it. But then it was you know, I, I focused started focusing on my ingredients and I was like, Man, I gotta grow my own food. Um so then you found permaculture. So what what was it that you were like, you know what, I got to do this conference? Like, how did you start networking to build that? Because that's, um, as we were talking about before the show, and, um, it, you know, I do, I do promotion for comedy shows, and I'll have, like, one or two comics, and that stresses me the hell out. Like, it's, you know, finding the venues, we're going to different cities, booking flights, but this is, like, a huge scale. Like, I've I've been to to conferences for like sales events and, and different motivational things like that. And, and from what I've heard on your podcast, like it's not that, that different. Um, so when did you like, what was kind of like your inspiration to want to do it? 
And um, I guess like, man, how do you how do you pull it off? Because you have to work your you have to work your tail off to pull that off. So yeah, I guess the lesson in this story will be this is how not to start a business. <laughs> so I started it with the idea of nobody's doing it. I think it would be cool. And I think I could sell it. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to do without really saying who's going to come, how price sensitive are they? Do they travel to conferences? Who are, who are they? Who's who? Without asking those types of questions. So I kind of just dived in ignorantly with, with a dis- thinking, okay, this is going to be a business, but without doing any of the front end work to actually qualify, should this be a business? So I started essentially at the time I was talking to Paul Wheaton a lot and he actually, you know, was really a mentor in, in very many ways, helped me kind of get this off the ground. And I just started contacting people and saying, Hey, I want to put this type of event on. Here's what my goals are. Would you like to be part of it? Long story short, it all ended up coming together. And it's been a challenge to try and take the experience and really refine that into a business where versus starting at a business and and then trying to create something out of that. So that that's really how that came about in a nutshell. And I, and I can't stress enough that don't start a business like that. Know who you want to sell it to. Do they want it? How much will they pay for it? And, and how can you actually market to them in terms of the event itself? You know, I think I think a lot of people think it's it's overwhelming and maybe I'm just really good at handling multiple plates. I always think of it like a line cook. You know, you have multiple pans on the stove and you're just you're only attending to one thing at the time while something's on the back burner. So a lot of it it's duplicating. You know, if I'm going to email a speaker to get a talk topic while I'm emailing all 20 or 30 of them at one time. And the hardest part is really staying in communication with everybody. The logistics of it all just kind of fall into place as you go. And there's a lot of work there. But what I've really tried to do this year with PV3 versus the others is I tried to scale back and say, what don't I have to do and what can I not do yet still have the same or better quality of event and that analysis was huge because it took a lot of cost off the table for me. It took a lot of time and stress. Uh, there, I'm dealing with less people. So it, it was never the work that got me. It was just dealing with a lot of people can be a headache. Uh, yeah. not, not in the sense of you got to communicate with them all, but you email them, they don't email you back, or you ask them with this question and they don't answer it. It's just chasing that down got to be a pain. So it's I like really tried. Cats. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. So I tried to systematize it down. That makes sense, man. That makes, how many, so how many speakers did you have the first two years versus this year then? Cause you said you're scaling it back. So what, um, ah. Because I, I think now this year, from what you said on the podcast, you're really focusing on like more, more like business oriented, or or how how is PV three going to be different this year? Sure. 
you know, in terms of numbers of speakers, it's probably a third of what it was in one and two. So I have say 20 this year. So I probably had 60 in the first one and two years, you know, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. And what I tried to do there for PV3 is look at people who were out there doing it. So not people who were, were theorists. They, they had written a book on something and, and it was really esoteric and yet it, it wasn't really applicable. Because my whole thing is how do you make a living with agriculture and permaculture? So the only way you're going to do that is looking at models of people doing that and learning from people actually doing that. So if you're, if you're just a theorist, well, you're, you're making a living some other way, not likely doing what the theory says. So I've really tried to focus on, say, people like Curtis, farmers who are making a profitable living doing it, or designers who are making a profitable living doing design. And then I've just tried to say, hey, you know, a lot of these speakers have a lot of knowledge within them. There's no sense in having them come out and do one talk. Could they do multiple talks or do very in-depth talks to get more knowledge out of them? And that just benefits attendees. And then on the back end, it makes it easier for me because now I'm filling more spots with the same person. I'm getting more content out of the same person, less people to deal with, less costs, all those types of things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds a lot more efficient too. Um, Anyways, as I was saying, uh, that's that sounds more efficient. Like, have you gotten any? Um, I guess have you gotten any uh, blowback from from changing it up or a little bit, very minor. But it's it's one of the things you're always going to get some. And honestly, I've never gotten a ton. But the blowback that I have gotten this year is the least I've ever gotten because I think it's simple. If you're into this subject matter, meaning business focused around permaculture and agriculture, then come. If you're not into that, don't come. I mean, there's there's no reason to complain. I'm not going to change the event. Uh, it is what it is. It's like, if you don't drink soda, well, don't complain to Coca-Cola that there's X ingredients in their soda. You know, you don't drink it, so who cares? So I think that's really what's happened. And I think it's it's really helped quantify an audience who I can market to, and then the people that I generally market to get it, and they want to hear this type of content, so they're not really opposed to it because that's what they want. Yeah, I'm, I'm super stoked. I was on the, I wasn't on the fence, but I was like, man, you know, it it, it kind of seems. I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's not inexpensive, that's for sure, but it's it's worth it. The value you get out of it is huge, and I remember. I actually started out in sales and in business and uh, network marketing um, back when I was like 22. And I remember I the first event I went to, it cost me probably the same cost it was going to cost for Permaculture Voices. And and back then it was something that like, you know, I, I was told by a lot of people saying, you know, this is, it's, it you know, it's going to help basically... Um, you know, kind of help you with, with sh- not necessarily shortcuts, but it's going to, it's going to help kind of give you the cheat code or the life hack in the sense that 
it's going to give you an opportunity to, I mean, listening to, I think Luke said it best in his, uh, in his talk or in one of the episodes that he, he did with him, uh, which was, you know, the networking aspect of that is huge because you're going to be around other people that are into similar things. So even those talks that you go to sitting in that audience, you're going to have so many more people that are like you or think like you that might have similar questions but maybe have answers to questions that you have or or maybe can help you in another way but i think ultimately i think for networking i think it's i think it's huge and also just just the ability to interact with you know people with like curtis or listen to, to jm fortier or you know any of the other speakers that you're going to have there that are really killing it and making a living doing what they needed to, like doing this business which or this this field of or scope of interest that is really kind of it's really infectious. I think once you get permaculture, once you get in this field of of restorative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, like it becomes an obsession. I, I know it has for me, and I think like you know I'm 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 grateful for resources like your podcast, where you know when we were doing like this was our first year at the farmers market, and you know we we quickly realized that we could make money but it was going to be a challenge to make a living. And I think, you know, being able to, to, to go to this event for me and really network and, and pick the brains of, of other individuals that are really successful in this field that I'm becoming obsessed with, and I, and I hope I'm inspiring others to become obsessed with it too, I just, I just can't say enough about it, man. Like, I'm, I'm so stoked about it. And I think that for for anybody that I think is listening that really wants to 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 I think you know even if it's going to be tight to get there I think people should find a way to get there like I had um Scott Hebert on and he's in Curtis's class too and he goes man like it was so cuz he went he just did his Kickstarter campaign and he he actually crushed his Kickstarter campaign within about 2 weeks um and he uh he he'd actually gone to Curtis's farm and, and paid him to consult, and he said, "Man, it, it put him so ahead of the curve for for getting started that it gave him like a, a not just a confidence, but it gave him like he actually had somebody that that was successful and did it that whose brain he could pick." And I don't want to get too long winded on this, uh, Diego, but that's my that's my feeling about permaculture voices, man. <laughs> yeah, and, and totally, I. It, Nothing should ever be, I don't want to say nothing, um, but a lot of things aren't price tag questions. You know, if it's a total impulse buy, you know, should I buy this thing in the checkout line? Uh, it's three bucks versus six bucks. I don't mind spending three bucks. Go for it. But for the conference, it's not for everybody. It's 600 bucks and you got to decide, you meaning anybody who's going, if you're, what are you trading that $600 for? What are you going to get back for that? And you need to know the answer to that. Otherwise, don't spend the money. Don't yeah. come. And that's going to be different for everybody. Some people who are new into the sector might just say, you know, this stuff resonates. I want to make a living for, from it, but I don't exactly know how. I just want to see a bunch of different people who are making a living from it in different ways and get exposure to it. And to them, that's worth it because they get to see a whole lot and then focus on a direction and maybe not waste time chasing stuff that's not for them. For somebody who's more advanced or, say, doing small-scale farming, it could be like, okay, I'm, I've gone through my first year of farming. 
what are some big questions or problems I have and, and who do I need to talk to? What, what, what's the one question I need to ask Jean Martin about? Or if I sat down with him for five or 10 minutes, what are the few things I want to ask him about? Or what are the few things I want to ask Curtis about? And in theory, those are big questions that have kind of lingered in your mind that you're having trouble answering. So they should have a big or and or immediate impact on what you're doing. And if you're doing this as a business, well, what you do turns into either dollars spent, dollars saved, or dollars made. So it's just a value trade-off. And that's not just the conference, whether it's a book or a class or anything else. You know, when I first got into finance and in, in the stock market, I mean, I was paying $1,500 to take a class or a workshop. And it was nothing in that sector. But you come into a sector like permaculture and, you know, $600, I'm not going to say it's cheap, but compared to other areas, you know, it's not that expensive. If this is blogging or something like that, you know, I'd be on the cheaper end of things. But you, you got to be serious about it. And I think anybody who's going or thinking about going has to honestly look at their own situation and just say, why am I going? You know, what, what's the value trade off for me? If it's just for fun, well, then great, come for fun. But if it's for something else, quantify what that is and make sure you get that when you come. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, man. And, and even too, I mean, you can, I mean, you, if you go and get a degree in agriculture, it's going to cost you a lot more money. And, I, and, I, and quite honestly, I think you'll learn a whole lot less than what you would from, the, from a three-day weekend. And, um, I mean, you'll learn some stuff, but I think, you know, the way I think education works now, it's, it's just completely different. And I think, and I think the way people view it should be completely different because you can get, you can give yourself quite a good education off YouTube university, but for specific questions, I mean, like, I, I think, you know, after purchasing Curtis's course for me and my partner, Joel, I mean, it, it you know, we learned a lot from your guys's podcast, but I mean, the, to, 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 to get all the detail, to watch Curtis plant his microgreens, to watch his, his uh, to, to see the breakdown of where to buy stuff from and everything else like that. I mean, it, it, it really just helps you put a lot of, it helped me put a lot of things in perspective. So um, I'm super, super stoked about it. Um, but uh, um, well, I got one comment there too. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing, other thing, I think one other thing I don't think a lot of people think about is, along the lines of networking, but it has to do with just connecting with other people. And I'm not yeah. saying in a business-to-business -business type sense, because anybody who's running any sort of business, farming or not, knows that it is difficult and it's a grind. Yeah. So here's three days where you can come, hang out with other people that are also in that grind, have a beer, relax, share war stories, get re-energized. It's hard to put a value on that until you experience it. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of value in that for people. No, I, I a hundred percent agree. And that's something I, I can't believe I uh, kind of wasn't hitting on there, but yeah, I think, uh, I think that's the biggest thing too. And I think, you know, something that, you know, you and, and Curtis say a lot in that podcast is, you know, you, you know, or Curtis says a lot, like you're the sum of your, your five closest people. I think, you know, having having a partner, having people that you can lean on. Even when I started my podcast, I had a bunch of other friends that had started a podcast and friends that had already been doing the podcast. And it's really easy to where you get a challenge or 
you mess up a few episodes, even with my podcast, it would have been really easy to throw in the towel or, you know, you're not getting downloads right away or you're not understanding how to do certain things. And I think, you know, having, having a, a, a Rolodex of people you can lean on or, or just vent to that will understand where you're coming from, I think it goes just like what you said. It really does go a long way. Totally. I think most of the success in business, or let's call it a lot of the success in business, is just outlasting everybody else. Because like you said, when bumps hit, people want to bail. Yeah. And you have to be resilient enough to keep pushing. Now, there's a lot that goes into the business. Is it a viable business anyway? But that's a different story. But assuming you have a business that's gaining some traction, it's going to be hard. And sometimes those little touches or having that Rolodex of people you can call and just ask a quick, quick question of is really valuable. You know, I came back from Curtis's actually this weekend and I had a layover in the Calgary airport. I met Rob Avis of Verge Permaculture just for a drink, you know, talked to him for about an hour. And it was one of the most productive hours that I've had in a long time, just from a remotivating. He got me thinking about some stuff that maybe I wasn't thinking of. You know, I questioned some things I was doing and it was nice just to have that. Yeah. And that's something too, that I think that's, that's key to that. You just said, like, I I feel like everybody does go through that too. Like, I think for me, even with this, even with my podcast or any business, like I, I kind of felt, uh, even today, man, like, you you know, that, that voice of, of, of doubt or, or, you know, that questioning that you have of yourself doesn't really go away. I don't think ever. So I think it is always good to, to, to be able to, to, to lean on people. So I think, um, and that's a, that's that's a good point, man. Um, now, now, not to shift gears too much, but you know, for because a lot of people, I, I hear about the agriculture stuff you have going on at your house. Um, do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, it, it's in a bit of state of flux, but it's there's probably some good lessons in there. Yeah. Um, so what all? So when did you start um, growing food at your house? I know it was before Permaculture Voices, so. Like how how have you kind of had like how much of your yard do you have um, in the in the garden state and do you do you sell your food at a farmer's market or anything like that? So I have three quarters of an acre that we got when we bought the house in two thousand and eleven April two thousand eleven. So I've been here four and a half years, and my ultimate goal moving in and this was really inspired by reading Toby Hemingway's book Gaia Garden. Kaya's garden was just to produce as much food as possible on it, sell some, consume as much as we could, that type of thing. And along the way, there's been some hard lessons learned because it's been so dry here in California and I don't have the best property in terms of layout and or soils. The soils are really thin and poor. So even when you're watering a lot, the roots typically aren't deep. So when I first moved in, it's like, okay, we have all this land. Let's just go nuts planting. And I I chased every rabbit. I want to plant all different (laughs) types of citrus fruits and avocados. And we can grow subtropicals here. So I was trying to grow all those. And they're all scattered all over the yard. And you think, okay, three quarters of an acre, that's not that big. But it's big when you need to water them all. And you need, you know, five different hoses at five different points to get to all the trees. And it's hard to stay on top of them all. So slowly that has 
gone away. Now it's just what grows the best on my land and what do I want to grow? So it's pretty much pomegranates grow really well. I don't have to water them a lot. So I grow a lot of pomegranates. I'm starting to grow more mesquite. I have probably eight honey mesquite trees that produce pods. I'm starting to propagate those out. So that'll be one of the other crops. And then just apples because those, it's something I really like and kind of have memories from as a kid. And I'm trying to grow those. And it's now having lived on the property four and a half years, I feel like I finally have a sense of how am I going to use this property in the long run? And I didn't have that sense when I first moved on the property, hence all the haphazard plantings that just made it inconvenient, wasted a lot of money. So so now that I've lived on the property, kind of the, the, the goal now is to transition the property towards something that can do farming along the lines of what Curtis does, small-scale, bio-intensive farming. And I have some different issues to overcome than he has up there, like the slope. My, my land is not flat. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, gophers are a huge problem down here. Thin soils are another problem. So really what I have now are trees that produce fruit. I have chickens that I've integrated into different uh, kind of a mini agroforestry type system. And then I'm starting to scale up microgreens myself while I kind of get the green side of thing, the lettuce, the kale, all dialed in on a small scale. So I'm really starting small saying, okay, I want to make sure I can produce these crops well before I pull the trigger and try to sell them commercially. So if I'm going to do anything commercially, it's probably looking like it's going to be 2017. Yeah, that's uh, that's something that I like. I can't imagine like being in Ohio. Our biggest, a lot of times, even like we have a guy here. He does. He sells a lot to restaurants. Um, and it's it's so. And I think something that you pointed out was something that I I definitely did too. Like when we first started at my place, I I tore up most of the yard. I can't say how much uh, what what acreage it is. Half of my yard is blacktop. Um, cause I had this, my, I live in my buddy's house. It was like abandoned for seven years and he bought it and fixed it up. And, uh, when I turned the yard into it, it was like, okay, we, I just wanted to get seeds in the ground. So I planted like pretty much random stuff. And then I had cucumbers and I didn't have any trellises or anything. And they took over most of my beds and, uh, and I did produce a lot of cucumbers and, uh, did take those that we had at a farmer's market. But I think, you know, something that you said too, is focusing on actual, What's going to grow best? Um, what can we do here? Which is, which I think everybody does when they first get started. It's like you know, I really want to. I'm going to do everything I can, and, and you guys talk about that a lot. Um, now with chickens in California, like do you do, do they have like crazy permit laws or anything like that, or how how is that worked out? Where I'm at, it's semi rural, so there's no issues. I'm sure there's a limit, but you know, I may or may not be over it. Um, haven't really checked and, and kind of don't really care. My neighbors have chick, <laughs> chickens, so they're not complainers. Yeah. And it's kind of a cool little neighborhood that I'm in. But no, I'm, I don't have neighbors beating down. I mean, you know, permits. If I had a rooster, that would probably create an issue. Had one, had to uh, process that. So I don't have a rooster. Um, it's 
otherwise, you know, no, it's not really a big deal out here. I think it's actually becoming kind of cool, culturally cool to have chickens. It's a nice little uh, checkpoint that you can drop on somebody at a party. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely getting popular around here, and I think it's getting popular to a point where um, you're supposed to have a permit in this city. I know a lot of people don't, but now the city's really getting stupid with some regulations here it's like they they've figured out that it's a way that they could you know extort people for more money um but that's pretty awesome man you got a nice little mini mini force going on um so um so so what what was i going to go with next man um i started thinking about chickens and then the city and i distracted myself diego i'm such a such a professional podcaster here bud um <laughs> i mean i can give you some things i mean just kind of going off of what you were saying, you planted a whole bunch of seeds. And I think that's one of the things that I kind of call the cult, the, um, the curse of permaculture is people get into permaculture and they just want to do everything, every yeah. technique, read every book, put it all on their land, plant every single plant that sounds cool, order every seed out of every seed catalog and do it all at once. And I think everybody's inevitably going to go through that, but you kind of get wise at some point and realize, okay, slow down. What's working? What's not? And what do I actually want to do here? Because at some point, the effort and the coolness, the effort and the cost wear away at the coolness of just trying to do everything. So I, I kind of look at it now of, is it going to save me money? Is it going to produce me money? Is it going to save me water? If if I can check off one of those boxes with it, I'm more apt to do it versus say build a a greenhouse on my property or well, say an earth ship. You know, it's like what am I going to do with that? Unless I Airbnb it, there's it's something that would be fun to do. It'd be a cool project, but it doesn't really help me get forward. It's just me kind of chasing another shiny object. So that's been the biggest lesson I've learned after four and a half years is take it slow and really think what's the long term from for the pro- property and how do you accomplish that? And that may mean not being able to do a lot of things that you always thought you wanted to do. You just can't fit them into the plan. And then the other takeaway for me is take the time to build soil, whether you have to import it or if you want to go the slower process and kind of farm it or grow it, because that's been a huge killer for me. I mean, I've killed a lot of trees because the soil just doesn't hold enough water. Water's expensive. So you're trying to balance between watering enough and, and saving some money. And I would have fared a lot better of just bringing in, say, I mean, no joke, $5,000 worth of soil or something like that versus planting $5,000 worth of plants over five years and realizing, you know, 80% of those plants have died off. Yeah. I really realized, listening to you talk about planting, like how spoiled people are in the Midwest and Ohio with just an abundance of rain and soil. Like I think, uh, you know, certain areas, like I took over a city lot and that soil was, was, is terrible. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, depending on your area, it's such a, such a huge difference. And I think that's like the, I feel like the really resilient ones are the ones where, where you live or somebody probably in Arizona with like a desert garden or something like that. Because here it's like, you know, the problem is usually like, it's not just 
making sure that you get enough water. It's it's usually like, okay, how do I not flood my plants? Because we got, man, I think we had a record for rain this year in Ohio. So it's it's um it's interesting to hear you say that because all the stuff you said, it's like, man, I never have to worry about. I I never really have to worry about that. I have to worry about other things, and I think that's what makes you know another thing about what makes like, you know, talking to people about their gardens in different areas of the country. So exciting. Cause it's like, man, I've never had to worry about that. Like, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah. It's a nightmare. I mean, I am jealous of my parents. They live in upstate New York and, you know, never have to water anything and always water available. You can go out in the yard and actually dig a hole with a shovel. You know, I remember planting some of my, the first plants I put on the property and I, I had to use a digging bar to just kind of ch- chisel out essentially a hole. And, you know, thinking back, you know, in a lot of those situations, the appropriate solution probably is just not to plant anything right away. You know, if you're having to go through that much effort to get something in the ground, you have other problems to tackle first, you know, build up the soil. It shouldn't be that hard because, you know, realistically how well is a plant going to survive in that type of situation? But, you know, every place has their own challenges. Absolutely. Do you collect rainwater as well? Or are you allowed to collect rainwater? I know my friend in Vegas, isn't. it's illegal for him to collect rainwater. Technically, I don't know. Uh, I, I divert the water off of my roof into areas where I have trees. You know, the collection side of things, unless you wanted it, that water for a survival preparedness standpoint, I don't know that it makes sense. We've been getting such infrequent rains out here. And if you have a decent sized property, it's like you fill up a tank, you don't get another rain for a month. I mean, the tank's gone right away. So it's almost like, why even go through the hassle of catching it? You know, just direct it to somewhere in the soil where the plants can directly use it. So, I don't catch it now, but I definitely try to direct everything I can off my roof and I get the water off two of my neighbor's driveways and kind of put that into the system. That's pretty awesome, man. That's all. Yeah, I've heard, um, I think I heard Mark Shepard say a couple times that a lot of times rain barrels, depending on your area, like I know where it is here, it would just be kind of a fair, failed concept because it would be full halfway through a storm and then it's just overflowing anyways. And I think it's it's like it's it's interesting to think about with rain barrels and rainwater, like the way. And that was something I really kind of learned through through permaculture was because I I'd plan on correcting collecting this rainwater and doing all this stuff. And it's like you know I should really just design my 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 just like what you said, really just to direct the rainwater in a certain way. Um, but um, anyway, so I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit there, Diego. Um, but uh, I tell you what, man, we're getting close to an hour here. Um, so uh, I think uh, I'm kind of close up. I think, you know, if, you know, if, if people want to follow you, um, what's a good way for people to get in touch with you and follow you? Um, obviously, permaculturevoices.com. Yeah, that's the best place, permaculturevoices.com. There you'll see the menu for the podcast including the urban farmer, the one which you've referenced that I do with Curtis. There'll be links to all the other shows there. I think I'm, I'm over the 200 plus episode mark now in terms of total things that have been published out there. So there's a lot of back content. If somebody wants to check that out, it's all free. So yeah, play around, see what you like. 
And I've referenced that a lot too, but I think, you know, it's really important, I think, for people to check out your other episodes too. I've talked about the urban farmer a lot because I think it applies most to what, what I do living in the city. But I mean, the, the talks that you have, like there's so many episodes on there from, from your permaculture voices, uh, conferences that I think are just, 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 just killer. Like I think, you know, the one more recently with Jack Spearco, um, you've had a lot of different kind of entrepreneur guys on there. I think the Luke Callahan podcast you've done. There's so many good podcasts that you have on there. So if you guys are listening, check it out and, and dive deep. I know I have and have really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, and, and is there anything else you want to add, Diego? I'm sorry, man. I just asked you a question, then I, and then I talked over you because I'm such a professional podcaster. No, no problem. Just say, check out any of our shows. I'm always trying to you know, get more people listening. Spread the word. Rate it on iTunes if you can, if you like it. And feel free to drop me a line. I try and get back to everybody on email. It's just diego at permaculturevoices.com. And you can also find on the site information for PV3. That's the conference, which we've talked about in this episode. That'll be in San Diego, March 2nd through March 5th, 2016. You can get more information on that at permaculturevoices.com. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks again for tuning into this episode. Diego, thank you so much for joining me today. Looking forward to meeting you in March. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been awesome.